Greetings. I'm Josh Tyson, co-author of the first best-selling book about conversational AI, Age of Invisible Machines. The book explores the learnings of conversational AI veteran and OneReach.ai CEO, Rob Wilson. Each week, Rob and I bring in a guest to continue the conversation we started in the pages of our book. This week on the Invisible Machines podcast, we're talking about the craft of conversational design and how it has shifted from focusing on what we want systems to say to fine-tuning what we don't want them to say. We're talking about the new possibilities and limitations associated with large language models, the convoluted web of personalizing conversational experiences, conversational analytics, and how something as simple as a one-second pause can communicate a lot. We're also talking about conversational AI as a force for connectivity and co-creation between humans. And our guest this week is Kathy Pearl, someone with deep roots in conversational design. Kathy is currently the UX lead on Google Bard and is also author of the seminal book, Designing Voice User Interfaces from O'Reilly. Previously, she led experience design on Google Assistant and also spent time as a software engineer with NASA. Kathy is working on a new book about conversational analytics, and we were happy to get some time with her at this unique inflection point. Speaking of books, if you dig this episode, go back and check out episode 15 in season one for our conversation with publisher Tim O'Reilly. Right now, let's get into this insightful conversation with Kathy Pearl. Something in the air today. Um, the hair, something in the air. I Something in the, the hair, hair in the air. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> it's the new hairdo. Yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he got his hair to match his glasses. That's, that's mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. 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 My wife's a stylist, so she was up to the challenge. <laughs> oh, man. That'd be cool to have a spouse who's a stylist. You know, my mom, my mom was a, was a hairdresser for a while when I was a kid. Um, You're just now telling me this? Yeah, I know, because it was just a brief, it was a brief thing for her, but oh, I, okay. she practiced on me. I would have like two hour haircuts. It was, it was it, excruciating. It looks like she practiced a lot. Yeah, yeah, I ran out of hair. <laughs> well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We are super excited for this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And Rob, pleasure as always to see you as again. As always, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Kathy, you know, you've been playing a part in the evolution of conversational AI for decades. And I think things that you've been talking about for years are subtly kind of being discussed as new ideas. So we thought maybe we'd give you the opportunity if you, if you could give us your perspective on the maturation of this field and how you kind of have seen it evolve and grow and and where you think it is now, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think back to I got my start um, in the late 90s um, working on automated phone systems when speech recognition and natural language understanding were pretty brittle. Um, I remember we had to write our grammars, you know, what, what people might say by hand. Um, we oh, had to yeah. include ums and uhs and please as optionals, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so every single thing a person might say, we had to, to, to write it down. Um, and of course, it was very limited. And so to see now, not only with speech recognition, I mean, that's come leaps and bounds, but also to see, um, you know, with large language models, how much more um, diverse you can be with your with your queries and things. And, and it often still can understand you. I mean, if you had showed me something like that when I was working on those phone systems, I would have been blown away. 
Yeah, it's funny too, because if you think about those days, the grammar days, and it's not that it wasn't possible to understand. It was just a lot of work. I mean, a lot of work, but you could do it just at, so in, in some ways it's like, wow, look, look what was invented. In other ways, it's like, wow, look what was improved. Exactly. You know, now, now, now it's feasible. It's more of a feasibility to someone, I think, in your position than a, than a, a brand new idea. Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, there were things we dreamed of doing back then, and I can remember in the 2000s when statistical language models came out, and that was a step closer to where we are now, where we could say something like, how can I help you? You know, you can say things like this and that. And then instead of having an exact grammar, um, we could do a little bit of modeling. And that was a very exciting time because we were getting closer to, because we always knew sort of how people spoke. But as you said, we just, we didn't have the the technology yet to handle it. Yeah. We we were just talking um, before we got on the mic. Well, before we hit record, I guess about how it seems like like designing conversational experiences is almost more of a craft now. We actually looked up the word craft to make sure we were on the right track. But we, <laughs> we saw this line that it means it, in, in essence it kind of means building something with care. And so it does feel like you're kind of designing and developing at the same time now with these tools because you you don't have to send pieces of it off to be built. You can really kind of take control of it. Is that your experience? Yeah, as well? and the scripting—it's like not you're—you're you're kind of moving from from saying exactly these words to to prompting. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see how like so even the 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 job term conversation designer like that was new to me in around 2018. Before that, we usually called ourselves you know voice user interface designers, um, and now. As a conversation designer, a lot of people say, well, what's going to happen to us? You know, is our, is our job yes. going to go away? <laughs> I don't personally think so. I think it just is going to evolve. And as you said, I mean, this big thing is now with large language models, we're not scripting. We're not writing every single response. So on the one hand, that's very freeing. Like you don't have to go through and do every single no match and no input prompt. But you also have less control. So if there are times when you want to say exactly one thing, you know, that's very hard to get the large language model to do. So it's sort of, you know, it's like a pro and, and con in that way. And so now we think more about sort of the architecture of the conversation, not the individual responses, but how are they all going to flow together and how will person interact with it and things like that. Yeah, I have this uh, opinion that within the next few years, I don't even think it's five, we're going to replace most of our traditional UIs today. Like we're on this like mad you know, mad moment of just, and I mean, APIs as UIs, as well as, um, as well as our traditional, you know, GUI UIs that have navigation and we, and are geospatial in nature, right? Like go to this menu, go down three, then go to this yeah. menu. Um, and, and so it, it boggles my mind to think that anybody in the space thinks that their job's going away. Um, and, but I guess it's just like everyone, when our job changes, we think it's going away. Um, but our jobs always change. It's just how quickly your job will change. Not, not is it going away. It's going what you know is going away. Familiar yeah. is going away. Um, and I guess it's all how you behave or handle familiar if or unfamiliar. If unfamiliar is scary, <laughs> then it's scary. If yeah. unfamiliar is fun and exciting, like a new trip, then it's fun and exciting. Um, and I I don't know that you can change that in people. Ask them to 
know, to be okay with unfamiliar, you can just encourage them to make it familiar, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it almost feels like it would be comforting if your job is changing at this point. That's a good sign. (laughs) For for most jobs, I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think it depends on, again, how, as you said, like how comfortable are you with change? Like change, of course, everything changes and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not so good, but you have to be comfortable with the idea that, I mean, even now, you know, working on BARD, it's like we were moving so fast and it's different um, than anything I've I've done before. Um, and you just have to, I, I had to come to terms with this, like, I'm going to come into work and the plan may be changed, you know, <laughs> like I just have to be like, it's okay uh, and do that. Yeah. Yeah. The planning piece, right. It really does become craft-like. And I think that was your point, Josh, is like once, once it's developing in your hands, you know, and it, and it, and it's, and it's drying as you're making it, so to speak, like, you know, like sculpting in some ways or painting your you have that impression that you're moving fast because you're under a clock now, right? It's it's like playing chess with a clock versus playing chess with unlimited time. Mm. And you're going, oh, wow, here we go. I, I come in today and we're doing this. And, and if I don't get that done tomorrow, it's, it's going to be irrelevant. <laughs> so yeah. I was reminded of the conversation we had uh, with uh, Oveta Sampson, uh, a colleague at Google, um, who, you know, she, she said a lot of times she'll set her design teams loose with the intention of designing specifically around the limitations. And mm-hmm. I think she, I think she was specifically kind of talking about LLMs because it seems like that is a crucial starting point to what you're saying. Like before you you were designing exactly how the experience would go. Yeah. Now you're designing at the other end, like how you don't want it to go. Like <laughs> you don't yeah. want it to hallucinate in all these different ways. And you really are kind of like trying to put a finer point on something that's very blunt. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's more when we used to, you know, like Back in the day when we were testing our automated phone systems, you know, we would literally sit there, I'd sit there with like a 50 page specification doc and I would call it up and I would go through every single path. I would make every single error and, you know, check that everything was right. And that's not something you can do anymore, obviously. Um, But you, so then what you, but you still have to focus very much on like when things go wrong. And so we are testing, like, what if the person said this? What if the person said that? What's going to happen? Is there anything we can, you know, do about that? Um, so you, you, you just, the life of a conversation designer, a voice user interface designer has always been a very large focus on when things go wrong and you have to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And that's, I think is, has come into the LLM world as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. I mean, and, and in a lot of ways you really have to know what right looks like in order to define the opposite, right? Yeah. You need to know what right is to know what wrong is. Um, and so it's it's just an extension of of thinking about what how it should go and then and then narrowing the beam and trying to get this less controllable entity to to go down this path with I almost think of it like balling with bumpers, you know. You just gotta <laughs> now you're creating bumpers and being like, as long as you stay in the lane, <laughs> you yeah. know, we'll be okay. Yeah. Um, but we're gonna have to leave room for it to wander around a little bit. Uh, whereas before it was just this guided tour, you know, very, very deterministic, very probabilistic. Um, I still am under the opinion that, that to really embrace this technology, um, and whether it's a bridge or not is arguable or whether it's really the future state, but that it's going to be a combination of these deterministic and probabilistic components. I don't think we live in a world where 
everything's generative. Every decision is generative. I think there are those moments uh, in in the machine world where they just need to be deterministic because we want things to go the way we want them to go. We're, we want it to serve us and we want it to do exactly the things we want we want and that human in the loop isn't necessarily about the machine keeping you abreast of its decisions but it might just be you predetermining its decisions in advance and creating that template of decision making for it so that you know where it's going to go um and the fact that it's able to make its own decisions almost becomes irrelevant in those use cases because you don't want it to <laughs> you know it's Emergency scenarios, you know, I, I, um, somebody said it really well that one of the issues with self-driving cars that a lot of folks have in terms of adoption is that as long as it makes mistakes in ways that are unfamiliar to us, in in other words, as long as it makes mistakes in ways that we don't make mistakes, we're going to be very uncomfortable. Um, when it starts making the mistakes, it'll never be infallible, but if it starts making mistakes, the way we make mistakes will become more comfortable with it. <laughs> and it's an interesting idea as you apply that in my mind to conversational experiences, because a lot of times LLMs do make mistakes similar to like hallucinations aren't just an LLM issue. It's a human issue. I'm not going to mention some of the humans in politics, but I've seen a number of them <laughs> hallucinate. <laughs> so we uh, we actually have um, an academic fellowship at OneReach that's that's run by our friend and colleague, Daniel Ometti. Actually, just this morning, he was sharing an internal update. Uh, they've been working on some mental health research projects that use conversational experiences. Uh, and they had this one that's centered around journals uh, where a bot... Uh, if I understand it right, the bot kind of encourages you to journal. And I think the journaling in this instance is kind of taking place digitally. Uh, but then it provides a weekly summary so that uh, like GPT summarizes everything you've journaled. And then it does that, but it also kind of puts a focus on the positive things and reframes the negative things. <laughs> uh, and and the feedback that he shared today from, I think the study concluded from the participants was pretty amazing. And I think one of them talked about how she had printed out like she had or printed or saved all of the recaps because they were so precious to her <laughs> um, and to me that's really exciting right because it, it points to some really meaningful experiences that we can now create with this technology but I guess there's also like that double-edged aspect to it that that perhaps because you know these experiences were so meaningful because they verged on human like so I wonder what how you feel about you know where we might be headed in terms of hopeful things and then kind of what we need to curb against in terms of like not deceiving people along the way. Yeah. On the, on the hopeful side, I mean, I, I will, I'll, I'll just qualify everything I'm saying this whole time by, you know, generative AI is very new technology. I think there's so much we don't know um, what, what, what direction it's going to go. But I think early signs, um, I do like this idea of summarization. For example, you know, I have so many emails and sometimes I'll search through them and not find what I want, even though I know it's in there. And just the ability to be like, you know, what are all the emails about this topic? Uh, or, you know, even even practical things like who was the the person who came and fixed the refrigerator? Um, that's probably in my email somewhere. I can't remember the company name. 
and to have it take care of some of those very low key or you know low they're not like crazy important so like oh i have to have that information but boy would it be handy um and mm-hmm. save me some some time and effort so i think that kind of thing is is really promising um in terms of what to watch out for personally what i'm thinking about these days is mostly um, you know, trying to prevent harm, like how I think anytime you, you build a new technology, you have to think, how will people use this to harm other people? Because someone will always try to find a way. So thinking about how to guard against that, thinking about hallucinations, um, thinking about representation in the model, bias in the model. How do we, you know, combat the bias that just exists in the world because we're humans? Um, how do we try to, to make the model better than us in that way and remove some of that bias? Um, how do we handle, um, you know, content creation? Uh, how do we make sure that these are more like collaborators with you as opposed to, you know, just giving you the answer, just doing all the work? Um, so I think those are, you know, there's a lot in the news about how, oh, AI is going to take us all over. But I, I don't spend much time worrying about that. I spend more time worrying about the more present day, you know, possibilities. And I'm, I'm not really too concerned at this point about AI like <laughs> taking over the world or whatever. Yeah. Oh yeah, what are we about to say? Skynet, not yet? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I recently started compartmentalizing a little bit of that into a place of just um it, it we have AI to speak. So AI is a user interface. And I think it's important to compartmentalize that out and say, look, it's just AI as an interface. We're just talking words were in our interfaces. Conversation as a designer in the past, if I was to design something, I would always think left to right um, on the page. And I would always think that people were eye tracking and they were asking, is this what you want? Is this what you want? Is you know, And I would just go along the page and making the thing that was least common at the bottom right, you know? So to me, that was a conversation. I used words. It was just a really annoying conversation, right? Because, because <laughs> like you imagine having that, you know, is this what you want? Is this what you want? Um, and, and I guess it seemed a lot like the first IVRs, right? Press one for blah blah. <laughs> yeah, um, press or say one. Those are the best. Yeah, and you're like, yeah, press or say one. Press or say thirty-three. It, it seems like there's some overlap for the both of you because you you have experience working with IVR systems. And I think Rob's response to working with them was maybe similar to yours. He's like, I want to, I want to fix these. Cause this is like the most broken UX I've found anywhere. So I'm, I'm going to focus yeah. in on this. And it's interesting because it's changed now from, it seemed like the general attitude around IVRs and things were like, you know, users put up with them, uh, begrudgingly and businesses were willing to use them because they saved enough money that it was like, balancing out with the amount of attrition they were likely to cause. But now we've kind of opened this new door where it's not like you can just make the experience better, right? You can't, it's not like you just improve this IVR experience. So it's a little more seamless. You can actually create these whole worlds of experience where this, now this conversational agent is guiding you through some of the same things that might've existed in a phone tree, but it also has this layer of context because it's uh, you know, it, it can look through emails and find, un, you know, things in unstructured data that are useful. And so now it can provide this whole tapestry experience, which, you know, is quite a bit different, I suppose, than than where you both started. And that's not a question either, I guess. <laughs> well, I, 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 will, I will comment on that, though, because like um, 
you know, it's really true that IVRs get a bad rap. And I used to, when people would say, what do you do for a living? Oh, I make those automated phone systems. Oh, I hate those. And, you know, Saturday Night Live was making fun of them. And But to the point we were talking about earlier, um, uh, there are some that I've worked on or I've encountered that are actually, I think, really good. There's a lot of bad ones out there. But if you are given the time to really, as a designer, to really do a great job, um, like, there's one, my, my favorite was uh, I worked on 511, which is a, a Bay Area traffic and transit system. And this came out before most people had cell phones, certainly before smartphones. And so if you were out and about, you really couldn't check in on what's the traffic, how long will it take to get here, you know, when is this bus? Um, and so, you know, millions of people would call that because there was no operator to call. There was no alternative at that time if you weren't at your house to get that information. Um, and I got to work super closely with the the local transit organizations, um, and I think we put together something that that really was valuable to people and something that they they actually liked interacting with because it gave them information they couldn't get otherwise. Yeah, I, people are funny. They, I think, I've 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 said this for a while. It's whenever they think about calling and getting a human, they always imagine the the unusual happy experience of. It, it rings and within 20 seconds someone picks up and they're nice and they want to talk to you and they solve your problem and then you hang out and you find that the the management of these companies also think that's what's happening like they think that's like they're clearly not listening to any of their phone calls because that's not what's happening but they think that's what they're providing their customers and they think well who wouldn't want that and they they forget whether you're a customer or not that most of the time the person that's picking up the phone doesn't want to talk to you <laughs> like the turnover rate in call centers is super high <laughs> they're not like it's their job like this is if they had a choice to come in and do this for a living or take the day off they would definitely take the day off um so it's, you know, a lot of these questions are, would you rather talk to an IVR or someone who doesn't want to talk to you? <laughs> well, I think there are a lot of agents out there who are doing a very good job faking it, at least if they, if this, you get some very friendly um, agents. But yeah, I, I've sat in and call centers and listened to calls. Um, it's been a while now, but when I was working on a, a mobile healthcare app, we had a uh, an avatar you could have conversations with about your health. And I sat in in the UK in the 111 call center, which is not the emergency line, but the just general you know, medical line. And it was really incredible to hear those conversations because, again, like you were saying, the people at the top think, oh, this is, you know, for example, with 111, they have a questionnaire that they walk the user through to sign to see what are your symptoms, those kind of things. But I was listening to calls. There was a guy who had called 100 and something times that year. And he would wow. call and be like, well, I'm a little dizzy, maybe. He was lonely. And he was right. calling to talk to someone. But they have to take his call. And they have to try and walk him through this thing. And, um, you know, again, that's the kind of thing I think a lot of people may not realize that, are, that these systems are being used for. That's interesting. Like a friend, mm -hmm. um, a, a, a company. Company, not, yeah. A company that's being used for company. <laughs> um, that's a really good point uh, and I guess it begs the question can these systems become replace that to yeah, some degree I mean, 
that level well, of I mean, company. in the case of what, what I was mentioning earlier with the research project that Dan Lametti's working on, it, a facet of that is being created, right? Like uh-huh. if they felt, these people felt cared for and understood. it, it felt yeah. friendly because it, you know, I, I, I think one of the other takeaways he mentioned was that uh, there was this feeling that once they had these, I think that's why this lady had saved them. Now I'm remembering even more. How exciting. So she saved these <laughs> things. And the reason she liked to reread them is because it hadn't like generated ideas that weren't there or things that she hadn't shared. It had just reframed them. And she was now able to accept that as the truth instead of her initial processing, which might've been kind of negative. Yeah. Yeah, so it was she was, like, yeah. yeah. It was like giving her a positive perspective on, on a factual thing. And she realized that her brain was giving her a negative perspective on a factual thing. That that's really interesting because I, I could see that. I could also see, you know, for me, I, I journal a lot, and to me, it's a place to put, to vent, and to put feelings that I'm working through or whatever. And if I, I hope if it came back and was like, hey, you know that thing you were complaining about? Well, look at the positive side. I'm like, I don't <laughs> want to look at the positive side. I'm here in my journal to complain. Um, but it's true. Sometimes reframing, you know, can be very valuable. So I think it's a very, it's 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 a very balanced thing. Um, and it's as a human, even it's difficult where you want the person to feel heard and validated, <laughs> and you don't always jump in with like, oh, but you know, this positive thing. But sometimes you do, and it's like very subtle. It's it's a it's a hard skill as a human to know when to to try to reframe things and when to just you know be supportive of the person talking. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's not hard to imagine too that like there could be an algorithm that was picking up on specific patterns. Like maybe yeah. you know you over the course of a year, five times you brought up this specific incident with a person or something, and it might be able to present you with yeah. not a diagnosis, but like I noticed that multiple times you mentioned this person and you didn't like the way that things were left. Like, do you think it would be a good idea to reach out to them? I don't know. Like, yeah. if, it, if it was looking out for you in a way that. Sometimes yeah. you wish the people in your life might be just capable of. <laughs> yeah, that could I can, be interesting as well. I can't help but nerd out and just think that that's just a a more complex version of intent. Is your intent to vent, or is oh, that's a good point? Because I get that wrong with my wife all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, if I had an LLM in my ear telling me, "No, this is not the time to solve her problems." Sometimes yeah. I wish we could have flags and like I'm gonna I'm gonna start this conversation and I'm gonna put up the the venting flag and I'm gonna put up the problem solving flag and like then the person can immediately know like okay this is where we're gone. Yeah, this is rhetorical. I don't need you to respond. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, if you want to like make that a popular thing, I would I would not object. I think that would be great <laughs> for me. It's very true what you said about intent. I think sometimes people get caught up with things like LLMs and think oh, you know, intent is always like productivity, information seeking, but an intent could be, I want to talk to somebody or I want to, I want to share something exciting that happened in my life, or I want to explore some feelings about something. And there's still an intent there. The intent may not be like, I need a thing at the end of this that I can point to, but it's not, I think some people think, oh, they're just chit-chatting. It's like, well, chit-chat is not nothing. Um, There's, there's a lot of value in a lot of the different types of conversations we have together. And the question of you were asking earlier, like, is it good or bad if a computer takes on some of those companionship roles. I know that's a very hot philosophical topic that some people like Sherry Turkle is very horrified by like, you know, why would you pour your emotions out to a, a, an object that has no capacity for emotion? I um, do it to the ceiling fans I've been selling all the time. 
What do you say to the ceiling fan? I scream and crash at it because I'm like, I'm holding it up. My arm is hurting and I'm trying and I'm like, I'm yelling at the fan. I'm yelling at the guy who designed the fan. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I, I do not share her. I like I, either I'm unique and crazy, which I, I'm pretty sure I'm not. I scream at things all the time. In fact, I think I am harder on things than I am on people. Really? I'm sure I am. And, and I like it. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you like yelling people, at machines? But I, do, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I do. Yeah. I think it helps me get that fan up. Like it, that, that anger fuels me. Well, there's gotta be a use case buried in there, right? Like some sort of a, like bot that is just a, a sponge for abuse. And, and maybe it, yeah, it would have to know because I guess you, you often don't want bot. it to say anything to you. Yeah. Maybe you just want to see it devastated at the end. Like well, those crash rooms, you know, where you go in and just destroy yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. That, that's an interesting topic because if you think about things like Google Assistant and Siri and all that, um, you know, there's a whole there is a whole thing that's ongoing of like, what do you do for users who do abuse uh, those? Especially because so many of them have um, female sounding voices. Um, there's been some research yeah. showing that people are more abusive to the female sounding ones than the male sounding ones, but it's what do you do with that? Do you ignore it? Do you say, don't talk to me that way? Do you say, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go. Um, but I think that's another philosophical thing. It's like, does it matter if you yell at your voice assistant? And it's like, if I was at somebody's house and they were already cur always cursing at, you know, Siri or whatever, I might be like, hmm, what else are they going to curse at? Um, and nah. I might read something that may or may or not be true, but I might read something into the way they treat that bot. Um, like, yeah, it's you know, bad you practice. Could, somebody yeah. who somebody who's really nice to everybody except they're mean to waiters, you know, like, okay, they're not mean to you, but oh, yeah. you take that on. Yeah, you're we're we're training our future brains, right, today for what we'll do, you know, the whole free will thing, however you want to believe in it, that we, we all know training does work. You you know, military training causes you to react. So mm -hmm. the more you train your brain and patterns so we're essentially, if everything we're doing today is training the decisions for tomorrow that are autonomous, then yeah, talking to those machines when, when you know, they're being rude or when we're being rude to them and when yeah. they're not being rude is, right. is kind of setting that up. I do think there's a lot of subtlety and I, I, I'm excited to explore it all because, you know, that idea of a female voice and male voice, um, that's that's our house regardless like that's my wife's voice and my voice and and my kids like my kids will are are much ruder to her than they are to me um and we right or wrong we kind of assume it's because they're more comfortable with her right and sh she's not thrilled about that but on some level she feels like they feel safer um and and so it's it's hard to know. I, I think what it comes down to is there's some sort of world in which alignment is absolutely necessary. And then there's some world where we don't know, we don't understand the human brain well enough to start manipulating people through these systems intentionally, like by design, you know? Because um, we, it's the unintended consequences, I guess, when we start designing manipulations in the system whether those manipulations we believe are for good or for bad um yeah 
Because because are we smart enough to know the implications, you know, of of correcting that behavior? And um, uh, yeah, I I think I just took us took us somewhere we can't come back from, but we'll have to just. Well, it's that thing of like seeing twenty steps ahead too, right? Like you might design something to curtail a, a destructive behavior, but that but curtailing that might create some sort of unintended consequence. It's yeah. really hard to know. Yeah. This is what this is something I I've been discussing a lot because it's this idea of doing good but then doing good at mass, right? This in other words these things are powerful but centralized or where decision making is algorithmic and centralized, it gets scary. Um hey, everyone asked, you know, their AI assistant what they should eat, uh, which vegetable they should eat daily, and it said carrots. And now there's a run on carrots globally, <laughs> and like all farmers are dumping their current products and just growing carrots. And and the soil is you know isn't getting the diverse like just the all positive right, except just the fact that this algorithm's too simplistic, and and it's too broad, and so. I think to your point, and not your point, but I think where where your point leads is the world needs diversity. It needs variety. It needs to embrace it. It needs to, we as humans need to embrace diversity it, scientifically, right? Logically, yeah. mathematically, for our own good, like there's, there's almost no downside, um, which is crazy that we don't. But, um, but yeah, what is... Is there that version of this too? Diversity in are the systems? Do we release the systems too quickly with too simplistic algorithmic um, scenarios? Like it's almost like fractals that you don't know what the emergent complexity is going to, you know, what's going to happen. Um, so is there like, I guess, an argument to be made that diversity of AIs is where we should be focused on to mitigate damage versus kind of um, some folks who think they should sort of guardrail it and and centralize it so they could control it. Mm. It, it is a it is a fine line to walk, I think, because and speaking of diversity, you you want both um, to make your your systems diverse, but you also want a diverse group of people to feel recognized by your system. And so you want to make sure when, for example, if the bot is talking about marginalized groups, you know, is it is it throwing a lot of bias in there? Is it is it able so, you know, you could say, Oh, we're not gonna control the bot, we're gonna, you know, just let it be have all kinds of opinions and whatever. Or if you're if you're a corporation, or especially, you probably do have some things that you want to say. No, we we have a hard stance on this. Like we are not going to, um, you know, have the diversity of you know racism or whatever. Um, we're gonna we're gonna maybe the bot doesn't have opinions about other stuff, but the bot is gonna have a hard line on this. And it's you gotta you gotta think through it. You have to actually sit down and determine where are your guardrails. How many do you have? How cautious do you want your system to be versus how, you know, just let it go? Um, and I think that's exactly the kind of thing that I wish when the when the media is kind of scaremongering, being like, oh, you know, 
renowned scientists say AI will take over the world. <laughs> I'd rather shift the conversation to be thinking about when you're looking at a response from a bot, how can you tell if it's accurate? How can you tell if this is reliable information and you know, really start teaching people that kind of stuff um, as opposed to some of these other you know, yeah. wilder things? Yeah, it's sort of yeah. like the difference between a, a teacher banning ChatGPT outright or the more forward-thinking professors who have like baked it into their lesson plans. Yeah. It's like, no, yeah. generate me an essay in ChatGPT and show me all the things I got wrong. Yeah, And then exactly. have it build a presentation that yeah. you're going to give to the class. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one of the, 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 the most helpful guardrails for me is to just that delineation we were talking about, the logic, like AI making decisions for us versus AIs communicating with us. Yeah. <laughs> We know, we know as designers that there is n almost nothing but great things that can come from making machines more accessible to everyone. Um, not allowing subsets of the population access to machines and yeah. others alienated from them. We know that that's, that's almost all positive. Um, and... And, and that's great as a UI. It's fantastic and we should run towards it. Where we probably have to focus our concern is around the the gray areas of it making decisions. Once we yeah. get into agency of the system itself, the fact that it starts to make our decisions for us, um, whether it needs to confirm, whether, you know, this idea of, of systems making decisions on its own, that's where it feels like things could go off the rails. Um, and we should be careful. And and I don't I don't know how important it is to humans' happiness to have machines making decisions for them. Like I don't I, I think there's a lot of science to say anybody making decisions for me, whether it's a human or a machine or a machine, will make me unhappy. Well, I mean, I I would think it sort of depends on the decision. Like if you have a human assistant and you're planning a business trip. And you say, book me a hotel in, you know, in DC or whatever. I would, if I had, if I had an assistant, I would, I would want to empower that assistant to go ahead and book that hotel without coming back to me and saying, here are five I found. Like, I'm hoping they know me and my preferences well enough that they could just make that decision for me. Um, and so. But what I if could, it said, you need some hardship, so I booked you in a campground? Yeah. There's a great Then it doesn't know me very well. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the guardrail and then, and then you also could adjust. Like, let's say, let's say it turned out the the bot was bad at picking your hotel rooms. You're going to take away that decision power. You're going to say, nope, no more, no more. You deciding on the hotel. But gee, you're good at you know picking restaurants. So I'll, I'll let you make reservations for a restaurant. You know, it's it's the the cost of making a bad decision. And I think just like a human, you learn who in your life is good at making decisions for you and who maybe is not. And some people you'll <laughs> trust to pick the restaurant, and some people you won't. Similarly with bots, you might say, okay, I trust it with this, but I don't trust it with that. Yeah. Well, there's like a trajectory, right? Where maybe first couple instances it is presenting, here's five hotels I think you'll like. And then next time it's like, here's three that I think you'll like. And oh, here's two. And then, then it gets to the point where, yes, you can just trust it to handle that. But then that trajectory keeps going to a point where I suppose that at some distant point, or maybe not that distance, the machine is placating you by... Because it, it, it knows so well what it should do for you. It might occasionally like throw you a bone, right? Like, hey, I thought you'd probably like this hotel. What do you think? And that could be almost a slider. Like how, you know, if you're somebody who like, I, I want to experience different things and be challenged and you can move the slider up. 
Whereas, no, I want the same. I always want the residence in, you know, whatever, like do the same versus like, oh, I'm feeling more adventurous on this trip. Can you, you know, take me to a restaurant whose cuisine I've never had before, um, depending on how you're feeling. I like that idea. It's not, yeah, it's, 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 it's not black and white. It's not being like highly prescriptive necessarily, but it still gives you agency in that, you know, you get to kind of feel in control. I, I think you're right. It's yeah. It's how much, how prescriptive do I want to be? That becomes laborious. If it asks me for every detail, do you want to be near yeah. the elevator? How near right, the elevator? Right, 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 right. You yeah. know, versus like, can you make those those granular decisions for me? Because because the pain of being a little further from the elevator is less than the pain of you asking me. Um, right. But. But yeah, I love this idea of it being more of a slider of how much do I want you to decide for me? How much don't I in this in this instance or generally on this topic? Um, it kind of brings up another like a concept that we've been talking a lot on the show. We talked with Gartner on, which is that a lot of the future consumer is going to be these LLMs or these AI systems, you know, whether it's buying ink for your printer or a lot of those laborious decisions of what to buy um and it's it's this new concept i think to retail that says you now have to cater to a machine as a customer service experience like what is the customer experience a good customer experience to a machine is like this data-driven thing it's you know emotion now just gets kicked out the door and it's reputation and price and comparison shopping at scale um it's gaming the algorithm on the other side right um kind of interesting idea to me i keep coming back to the idea that machines become like one of the consumers in our in our ecosystem Mm -hmm. of of buyers Uh, i think they said 20 percent, something like that in the next five years yeah i believe so yeah i mean that's their everybody's guessing right now but um, Although you got to think about the, the the business, the business is a user. So if the machine does a very bad job with the business and is very abrupt and maybe and just like see, seems rude or whatever, then the business would be like, well, I'm not taking calls from that client anymore, that customer anymore, right. because it's unpleasant. So the the bot still has to behave in a way that the business will want to have that relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the sort of these bots keep calling me. I need to get a bot. Yeah. <laughs> Which puts us in this crazy ecosystem where personalization becomes, I mean, nearly infinite in ways, right? Like the the better you keep training your personal assistant, the more it can cater to your needs. But then it gets to the point where like, like how much personalization do we actually want? Like, I think maybe instinctually we might answer as much as possible, but like you're saying, like, we don't really care if we're, how close we are to the elevator, you know? So you're like, you're, you're having to calibrate, I guess, individually, which things you want control and input on and which things you are less yeah. concerned with. And that's going to be different for every person yeah. and potentially for every business as well. Yeah. You bring up like a super complicated design challenge because, um, we've had this technology for a while, right, on even graphical UIs to customize the page for each user, right? In fact, I think when a lot of the, you know, logic, logical engines came out in the day, 
everyone's like, oh my God, everyone's going to get a web page designed for them. But then you realize like there aren't enough designers in the world um, or budgets to like design all these variations. Like the, the problem is so huge. Um, but now we, we see that that opportunity exists with LLMs that each person could have a unique experience if provided contextual contextual information on that person. Um, and then what does that do to design when, you know, you, like you said, I think it becomes more of an architectural design because now what are you testing? You know, you can't, you just have to watch it in the wild and, and you have to iterate. So it seems like we go to this place from design up front and waterfall, which is what you had to do back in the day to like too agile for agile, where you're watching it like hourly and daily and making adjustments based on, you know, this, this observation or possibly, possibly an agent observation, um, of, of where things are going wrong and, it's almost like real world traffic control, right? Like, um, it's interesting when you get into hyper-personalization because it's, you, you get out of the world of predictability and into the world of full guardrails, right? It's. Yeah. Stay in the zone. And it veers sharply into like privacy issues too, right? Like, like, you know, if, if your assistant has access to your journal and knows that you've maybe had problems with a certain person over the years and then your assistant is talking to the hotel's assistant and while the hotel's like itself could never release a guest roster to a person maybe it tells the bots <laughs> communicate that so it does you the favor of not booking you in the same hotel with someone who you know you've had bad interactions with in the past and like what's yeah is that worth enough to you to allow it to do something that might in some ways feel deeply intrusive yeah, that's a good question. It makes me think about that Isaac Asimov story where it got to the point, I can't remember the name of it, where it got to the point where humans lived completely separate physically, like they each person had their own space and they would use, um, you know, virtual communication for everything. And it got to the point where it was almost like repulsive to be in the room with an actual, a real room with an actual person um, because everything was one, you know, step removed. And definitely don't want to get to that point where it's like, you know, I have my AI, I'm, I'm upset with you, but I have my IA talk to your AI to tell to tell it that I'm upset with you, you know, rather than <laughs> me just talk to you. So obviously that's not a, a good path uh, to go along. But the other thing I think it's really hard about personalization is sometimes I'll see people say, oh, well, we have a type of user. This user likes, you know, fancy graphics. This user likes a very, you know, short conversation. And, and there may be some tendencies there, but there's also just you as a person, it, it depends. You know, one day I might want to have a long leisurely conversation. One day I'm in a hurry. I agree one with that. One day I'm in good mood, one day I'm in bad mood. And so the bot can't just be like, ah, I have my, my preferences set. This is how we're going to communicate. When, you know, maybe that evening I want to have a different type of interaction. Um, so it has to be very flexible. Um, yeah, like, like I, that's humans. like a great example of like those blunt algorithms. Like, I like short conversations and then every conversation's short. Yeah. And you're yeah. like, no, I mean, I like them right now in this moment. It's a lot of people, it's our brain, right? Just trying to, 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 to be black and white and simplify things. But you know, a lot of people will be like, what's your favorite food? And I'm like, well, it depends what I'm in the mood for. Yeah, exactly. I don't have a favorite food. What's your favorite color? Like for what? Yeah. 
It's more you know? subtle than that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so we we take this misunderstanding of human beings that we have and then we pass that on to the system. <laughs> and yep. and then the system, you know, annoys us uh because us as humans don't understand ourselves and that's what i love about our field is the more we work in it the more we understand ourselves more than we understand the system it's like an exploration of humanity <laughs> and how it, our brains work and I it love is that. it is and i think i think conversa the conversation designers who are passionate are ones who are very interested in humans and how humans communicate and then they they try to apply that knowledge into a, a constrained technical solution. Um, I've gotten a lot more uh, interested in the field of conversation analysis, which, you know, is the study of humans talking to each other in the wild and like what lessons can we learn from that? Because it used to be thought, I think, before conversational analysis became a thing that, oh, there wasn't really, conversations are just conversations. There's not a lot of patterns, not a lot of things, you know, you can you can really measure or examine. And conversation analysis has shown that actually there are a lot of ways in which people talk to each other that you can really start to notice, you know, patterns and 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 see things in the way that people talk to each other. Uh, I think it's it's fascinating. Yeah, it's like it's like you know those folks who who are like human lie detectors. You know, they break down our facial expressions, our words, and they can determine, you know, just from. I mean, that that could be for anything. Um, and there's patterns to be uncovered that, of course, we don't see, or we do subconsciously pick up from each other. Yeah. That we, um, Dan Lametti, who 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 was mentioned earlier by Josh, uh, who works with us, um, his area, uh, one of his areas of study is how harmonics, how when we talk to each other, we harmonize, and mm. the frequencies of our voice actually start to match. Yeah. Um, so that's another thing that's interesting is. If you're reading people, um, it, let's say we we go down to the harmonics, right, of your voice, and actually look at that detail and that data and put that into the system. The interesting thing is, you also are influencing it though, and they're influenced by who they're talking to. So, when you're trying to measure, you know, on that, you also have to to try to get a good scientific experiment. You have to not be, you know, tainting the experiment with the other side so the you know so who are they talking to what is the behavior and if they start and if some people are more more you know sort of millions right they they match yeah who they're mirror, talking to yeah. more than others they have a mirror then all you're doing is studying the person they're talking to not them <laughs> which i guess you could put into the equation though you could like possibly study the behaviors of the person understand who they're interacting with and then subtract that from the equation. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. it, yeah. Fascinating. Sorry. I was just going down that road. I think, <laughs> I think where, where you're going is also very fascinating to me. That is the mining conversations, um, to figure out what we can understand about humans yeah. through and subtleties is amazing. It's fun. One of the uh, so so this this next book that I'm working on with a, a couple of of conversation and analysts, um, uh, Professor Elizabeth Stoko and Dr. Saul Albert, who are both um, professors in the UK, and some of the things I'm learning from them and and their and their work, um, 
have to do with just the subtleties we see, even in things like a pause. Like if, if I, you know, ask you a question, like, can you help me move tomorrow? And you pause for one second, just one second. I know the answer really is probably no. And um, we actually, for yes, no questions, we actually say yes, tiny bit faster than, than we'll respond with no. And those are the kind of things you could ask someone and they probably have no awareness of it. I know I didn't yep. until I, I saw it pointed out. And we, we are doing that kind of calculations in our mind all that. the time and we just don't even yep. know about it. Um, and so when you think about designing conversations for computers, which of those things do you want to implement in your, in your computer-based conversations? Which of those things are you saying, no, that wouldn't be a good idea to include? Yeah in ours yeah and that's interesting the the idea to time between words as a another data element to feed to the you know to the algorithm yeah to the neural net right to say distance between words is also another element like there's 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 letters and but then when we get into sound and timing um there's no distance between words necessarily but there might be with with text there might be in terms of filler words but yeah that'll be a whole another interesting topic the idea that that we do we do we when we say no do we put more filler words or do we explain it longer in text um <laughs> yeah well but of course we're not predicting but so some of the conversations that they've recorded have been about that kind of thing where you say no without saying no um, but people understand that you're saying no, especially if they know you really well. Um, and also another thing I think is very interesting is that they study, um, uh, the difference between conversations in the wild and something like training conversations. So for example, they were looking at training police officers to do interrogations. Uh -huh. Um, and the way they spoke in the training was not the same as the way they spoke out in the wild. They don't, you don't realize that. You, you think you're, you know, it's the difference between saying in training, you know, my name is Kathy versus in real life, I say, oh, I'm Kathy. Um, yep. Some of them are very subtle like that and some of them are bigger, but um, I think that's a really fascinating thing because it can inform us not only how do we train humans to do their job, but how do we train bots to do their job? Yeah, I worked on it's a project. It's interesting too. It almost seems like uh, through conversational analysis, you're demystifying intuition. Almost yeah. because a lot of, I, I think, you know, conversation is so deep inside of us, like on a biological level, it seems like that there are all of these things that we maybe attribute to a gut feeling or an instinct that might have something more to do with like what you're talking about, like just these subtle little tiny pauses that, that we might not even pick up on consciously yeah. or informing yeah. our decision-making making process internally. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I worked on a project, this whole journey started, um, alongside uh, a, a different project, Kalo and PAL, which was Adam Chair that became mm. Siri. Yeah. But um, they were military DARPA and we were CIA training operatives. Wow. And um, that was the thing is uh, in order to train operatives, you would run these training sessions and you would have you know, you would you would try to create scenarios in rooms, and they, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of operatives are introverts. That's like a big part of that persona, um, and so they wouldn't behave at all like the real world. In fact, they they wouldn't even they wouldn't even do it. They wouldn't even show up um, to do the training, and so 
the whole concept of of simulations uh, virtually was critical to getting like the training to be useful. And that was our entire project. It's actually what started this whole journey for me was yeah. that funding was creating this this these scenarios where they would be dropped in and they'd have to, you know, figure out who's lying or, you know, whether this is a real emergency and they should escalate it or whether it's just a person boasting and, you know, talking about blowing something up, but, you know, has no intent. And, and so we had to build in these subtle cues for them to pick up so that they could you know, make those determinations, which was really, it was really funny, but yeah, you're, you're completely right. Um, when in training, it's totally different when, 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 you know, it's the same with like user research or any of that stuff. When they know they're being asked to an, analyze something, um, and critique it, they're not, you, you know, it's, it's very hard to know what would have happened if they just came across it. Yeah. Yeah. The, there's, there's another thing they look at as mystery shoppers. Like if you're, you know, tasked with calling a restaurant or uh, a, a doctor's office to sort of, you know, a non sort of subtly test how the, the person handling, you know, handling the calls is doing. And so you pretend to be a real customer when you're not. And those mystery shoppers um, also don't speak the same way uh, as real, real people. Um and it's, it's oh, just that's fascinating. Interesting. And, and, you know, it's not like you're aware of it. You're not, you're not purposely saying, I'm going to talk about this. But if you're the one, if you're the one who has a sick cat, you will not talk exactly the same as if you're pretending to have yeah. a sick cat. Um, because it's the whole thing inside your mind is different. You have a different relationship with the actual subject in the, in the real world. And so, of course, you're going to talk about it differently. That makes sense. Yeah, it does come down to deception, I guess, at some point where you don't have a sick cat. So you know you're lying, and we've all been yeah, taught. Yeah, you know you're lying, bad. and when you're yeah. lying, you know it's you're, you're it's not a harmful lie, and you're supposed right. to do it, but still. Yeah. So a well calibrated AI system could be better at making those calls. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's either that or the, or those systems always act like liars. Right. <laughs> there, there is something really, I I haven't put my finger on, but there's there's something emerging right now where where people are getting attuned to like that was written mm-hmm. by an AI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's just that formal language, like because it's been trained on so many books and that it's just like, that's, that sounds like a professor. Um, or if it's so vanilla, but I'm finding it to be more and more people are able to accurately recognize the difference between something written by AI or not. Um, and it may just be, I haven't looked at it from this lens, like if you don't know the person versus knowing the person, mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. like, you don't see their voice in it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's a, I, I definitely have seen articles where I'm like, this is written by an AI and yeah. I'm trying to put my finger on what it is because, you know, they're grammatically correct and they're generally making sense. But then there's just some some oddness to them where you're like someone just wouldn't say that you know that's right. just an odd thing to say um but what is it what's odd about it subtle yeah i suppose if if we could figure that out we'd be able to detect we'd be able to detect what's written so <laughs> uh, yeah it'd be useful in the world yeah Sometimes, of course, uh, there are students who um, accidentally don't delete the part that says I'm a large language model in the middle of their essay and then 
That's a bit of a tell. <laughs> Make it a little easier on you. Yeah, that one's as long as the professor's reading it. Um, right. If they don't read it, it then... <laughs> uh, but I, I, I think that would be an interesting area as as you're as you're delving into the world of understanding the nuance of how humans speak and figuring out the patterns that reveal the person behind the words. It would also be interesting to look at the LLM and. F- you know, I would imagine it's the same sort of patterns and techniques. You're looking for these subtle patterns to reveal, you know, what is the thing or person uh, behind that's making these words. Yeah. Um, who knows? Maybe that's like the thing that comes out of it is is a detector. Yeah. <laughs> and this this is remind me another thing that I learned recently about in conversation analysis is the idea of recipient design, which is really just designing your responses in the conversation to the context of who and what you're talking about. And um, I was thinking about, uh, I was in the UK this summer and I was buying um, some, some I forget, I've just gotten what they're called, some tea cakes, Tunnock's tea cakes. And they were, uh, I was buying some that were milk chocolate and the woman at the cash register was very chatty, very chatty. And she's like, oh, do you, do you like the milk chocolate better than the, the dark chocolate? And I said, well, my son likes the milk chocolate, so that's what I'm getting. And she's like, oh, well, you know, the dark chocolate ones are very hard um, to find, so you should buy some of those right now, too. And she, like, turned this recipient design concept into a sale. You know, she's like, oh, I'm going to, I asked, she asked one question, do you like the milk chocolate ones? And now she's, here she is selling me the dark chocolate ones as well because she bothered to ask a question. Um, and not right. to say it's just good for sales, but it, in general, when you're trying to work with somebody, if you ask them a few questions, um, you can learn a bunch of stuff that might be relevant and helpful in the in the moment and design your interaction um, towards that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's the whole, like, we all think that we need to say something smart, but in reality, likability is about letting someone else say something smart. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah, there's that thing where, you know, if, if you want to be considered a good conversationalist, ask someone a lot of questions and they'll say, that yeah, was a great right. conversation, <laughs> even though maybe they did most of the... <laughs> The talking because it was all me <laughs> yes yeah as, as rob mentioned my wife is a hairstylist and that's i i think her ability to ask a lot of good questions and listen i mean she's really really good at what she does technically but i i think there there's this whole other relationship that exists because she's become an expert at just asking good questions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. listening and following up and it, it's really hard having you know, worked in the room with her at times. Like it's, it's hard to to overstate the value in something like that. And so I think being able to to bring that into conversational design, yeah, is really powerful. Yeah. I I think so for sure. I personally, I know we talk a lot about personalization, and I think a lot of people view that in the terms of like, what do I know about you permanently? Like, I know you're vegetarian. I know you like a room away from the elevator, but there's just also so much of the in the moment. Like right yeah. now, I can tell that you're in a hurry, or that you're stressed out, or that you really want to get this done, or you know, just in the moment stuff that can really steer in a good way the conversation you're having with the with the bot um, to get what what you need, and and you don't have to be like, oh, now I have to remember all these things about this person. No, it's just fleeting in the moment, just just what I need to know in order to to get what you need. Yeah, yeah like what you were saying earlier, like not just oh, they only like terse communication. That's all I'm going to do. It's like what you're saying. It's like oh, I I know I I'm looking at this at their schedule. I'm there. I'm. You know, if the bot is your assistant, it knows when you're in a hurry and it right. can make those judgment calls, which is interesting. Yeah, I, I, I've i said it n- uh, numerous times. I think art is too narrowly, you know, defined in our 
culture today. Um, and I say that today because I think before, you know, it's it's it's, be, it's getting narrower and narrower as time goes on. We decide that art has to have paint or yeah. has to include drawing. Um, and I think conversation is one of the most common and most popular forms of art. Uh, and I think that co-creation is what we enjoy, not watching yes. somebody do art. We like to do art together. The three yes. of us are making art right now. And the more you don't let other, like watching my kids play and, and one saying, no, I'm going to, I'm going to do it all. And you're, you don't get to decide how we're going to build this. You know, we, we sort of fight over who gets to do more of the art in a co-creation piece. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get to participate, you walk away unsatisfied because you didn't, you didn't get any co-creation. It wasn't yeah. co-creation. It was watching someone else's creation yeah. and appreciation for our art. So our conversation should be one where we both get, all three of us get to contribute and we all feel appreciated for our contributions. And, and maybe that's just connectivity. Maybe that's the substance that connects humans. And I love this idea that AI, not to, there, there's AI making space for us to have these conversations, which is productivity and what you've been doing for most of your career, right? That's fundamentally the idea that I'm not going to work on on co-creation for people i'm just gonna i'm just gonna give them the time right to do it themselves but i like this to take it further now and i think we're in a place where we can technically to go what about ai for facilitating co-creation between yes. like the mycelium as i said as we said in a podcast we haven't released yet but the mycelium for humans you know can it create connectivity between humans and enhance our connection and and our co-creation um, and, and I think that comes down to like, whether it's drawing pictures, as long as we get to contribute in, in some substantial enough way that we feel satisfied, it's fine. We don't have to co-create necessarily with other humans. It could be three ways, two of us and a machine. Um, you know, the paintbrush is still a machine. It's a rudimentary one, but at right. one time it was considered a technology innovation. Right. Right. Vermeer was incredibly technical. Um, I think machines have been a part of art since the beginning of machines. There's nothing wrong with it being a participant as long as we all get our part of it. Um, and we're, we're definitely seeing that with our users, um, with our BARD users. They often speak about, when we talk to them, they often speak about how, you know, LLMs are good for sort of getting me off the blank page and helping me figure things out as opposed to like, it's going to, a lot of them, they, they say out loud, I don't want it to do everything for me. Right. I want it to help me so that I can, you know, maybe get rid of some of the parts that I don't want to do, but still do the parts that I do find value in. And it's it's a tool yeah. to help me create that helps me co-creates, as you said, as opposed yeah. to I'm going to plug in my needs and it's going to give me a finished product. People don't. A lot of people are saying, no, I want I want I want, I want to create. I need some help, but I, I want to create myself. Yeah. And it makes sense that we anthropomorphize these machines and think, well, like us, it's going to take over and not let us do any of the creating, <laughs> right? Like my yeah. little, like my big sister is going to just take over right, and right. not let me, but it doesn't have a need to do all the, it doesn't, it, it doesn't get rewarded by doing most of the co-creating. It gets, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that reward system in it. It's, it's going to do as much co-creating as you want it to. And that can almost be the perfect playmate in some can it, in some mm -hmm. situations mm -hmm. because it does leave room for us to do as much or as little co-creating as we want whether it's 
taking, making room like in the past with IVR is making room for us to get, you know, in that example, you said, you know, what was the ultimate benefit um, in San Francisco was they, they freed up more of their time to do what co-create with oh, yeah, the five something else. Um, so it can do that, but it can also facilitate us co-creating together and it could also co-create with us. And I think that's, it's, they're interesting circles and it's interesting in a conversational design pattern to say, even when we're getting something practical done, it could be really enjoyable if there's some co-creation designed into that, right? Um, not not wasting time, but co-creating. Yeah. I think so much of the focus has been on productivity and the ways that obviously these systems can strip tedium out of our lives, but with with OpenAI releasing ChatGPT and a lot of these generative imagery tools appearing around the same time, you know, we did see the other side of it too, right? Like people were wanting to use it to summarize things and write emails, but they were also wanting to just chat with it and ask it questions yes. and see what kind of weird stuff it would do. Yes. People were wanting to use the images to enhance presentations, but people also wanted to see like the Pope in a puffer jacket. Like right. there were just <laughs> Human. So, so many sides to how we will use these things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you think it feels like there's probably going to start being overlap, right? Where it's, it's both things to individuals and to businesses, right? There's, there's an element of productivity, but then there's also an element of not like whimsy, but that it, it feeds these other needs that we have in yeah. terms of connectivity. I think so. And I have you, have you played around with pi.ai? Um, that LLM. Oh, it's, I haven't. It, it, check it out. It's very, uh, it definitely is trying to be more on the sort of human side. It has, you know, it expresses more sort of um, more casual conversation. The responses are shorter. It asks a lot of questions. Um, and I have found myself going there a few times to like talk through something. And it's, it's it really surprises me how well it actually it actually makes you feel listened to and like crazy stuff like that, which of course it's not listening, but um, it, it's, it's, it's a very interesting experience um, that I think has surpassed, you know, that, that, that kind of ability that we've ever seen before to go and chat. Um, yeah. And like we were talking about the intent, maybe I don't have a thing I need out of this, but maybe I just want to talk about it. Yeah. Um, I think like, yeah, the intent is more like who, a long-term thing. It's like you just, you want to accelerate yourself by feeling heard. Yeah. Yeah. Like you want a, a moment of connection. I mean, we're, we're driven not by able to dopamine. Get with a person right at the moment. Right. Like we're, yeah. we're driven by dopamine and, and, and reward systems in our brain. And, and I always think about this, that pack animals have to have, there has to be some force that draws, that draws the, the individual components of a pack together. There, there has to be something because the world Otherwise, entropy takes over. Entropy is the 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 natural state of things to to move away from each other. Therefore, there has to be a force that brings you know pack animals together. What is that force? I could call it co-creation. Um, co-creation provides that dopamine, and that reward system is what brings us together. Um, and so maybe that's. It's just that simple in this whole scenario that, you know, if we're co-creating with a with Pi, it's still dopamine, you know, right? And we're still connecting and we're still getting that reward. Um, the question, I guess, 
well, I don't know. We know the answer to is, is it a potato chip? Like, is it bad calories or good calories? Yeah. I, I don't think anybody knows the answer to that yet. And it's probably, it depends just like a potato chip, right? Yeah. On moderation and blah, blah, yeah. blah. But yeah. if you binge in, on it, then. Yeah. And it's like back to the, the means and the ends when I, that company I mentioned earlier, where we worked on a healthcare avatar. Um, and we had some cases where people with a chronic health condition would do a check-in every day with this nurse avatar and they would ask them their blood pressure and all these things. And then it would summarize the results and send them to the doctor. And the story that always has stuck with me um, is there was a woman who was going on a cruise and she said to her doctor, you know, I'm going to bring Molly, the name of the avatar, with me, like my iPad and my blood pressure cuff. And the doctor said, don't worry about it. You're only going to be gone a week. You really don't need to do that. And she said, but I, I'll miss talking to Molly every day. And that was a very straightforward, directed conversation. It wasn't fancy. It was asking the same questions every day. And yet it was, we noticed our patients who did that, rather than having to just fill out a form on their own, were much more likely to do that that process of, of looking after their their health. And it's like, so does it justify it? You know, you're talking to a yeah. machine, but you're healthier because you're doing these things right. you're supposed to do. Um, yeah, it's like a potato chip's better than starvation. Right. <laughs> right? It just depends. Yeah. Or moderation, right? It, it comes down to, yes, in the case where someone's starving, a potato chip will save their lives. In the case where you're where you're not getting enough socialization, you know, as a nutrient, that's yeah. kind of how I see it, um, then then something's better than nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and I, I, I definitely, you said earlier, is more of a like, um, I forget how you said, but more of an enhancement. It's like, I... I, I would not want to live in that Isaac Asimov world where we're like, we, we like can't be, even be physically next to a person anymore. But we do know that there are a lot of people who don't have enough companionship, don't have enough human to human connection. And it would be great if we could fix that. But yeah, in the yeah. meantime, could we add a bit to their life by at least having some sort of interaction when they can't always yeah. get the, the human connection that they need? Yeah, I, I have a, a story that I tell, which is, you know, the moment I was in Europe, you know the train stations there are really good especially in switzerland where i was and you know i was i was just sitting there watching a guy that took money and and gave tickets to the train and i was of course thinking his job will be automated very soon um and it of course made me wonder how he'd feel about that okay. um and um but then i realized i looked down down the the you know as the train pulled in I, I looked at this this lady trying to pull her bag onto the this heavy bag onto the train and being the canadian that i am i had to run over and help her um in in eastern europe by the way when i did that i usually got be beaten by the lady like thinking <laughs> i was stealing her back but oh. that's another story um in this particular case it was appreciated and i thought you know it doesn't mean that he won't be giving tickets. It means that he'll be on platform, helping her find directions, helping her get on, talking to her, interacting and caring about her. Yes. Um, versus brainlessly just giving tickets. And the reason he'll do it is because these train, these train um, organizations or whatever you want to call them, these governments run um, uh, departments are going to still compete with each other for who's got the better train <laughs> system, right? And and of course that's that's not going to end. Uh, and and so we look at is there room for improvement 
in customer service, I think, yeah. And, and that would be an example of will his job change, but yeah, in the way that's, he, I think he'll have a better day when, Feels first good of to all, he's not sitting in a chair all day. I mean, his health. Yeah. Secondly, he's walking around, he's interacting with human beings. Um, they're appreciating his help versus who says, thank you so much for taking my money and giving me a ticket. Um, and it just, it just made me realize that these systems can really help us if we're concentrated on improving the quality of our connectivity, they really could help. Um, and I think we, I think most of us in this field, that's why we do it. You know, we do, it's not to, to save companies money. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a misunderstanding. I think that we, you know, we, we want adoption. So we know we have to talk that language, but I think most of us are doing it for, for much greater reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember back in the IVR days, um, cause I spent a lot of time with clients getting their requirements and, and trying to, you know, work with them to figure out how we could build a solution for them. And we would often have the conversation where they would say something like, well, make the user, make the caller say operator 10 times before you transfer to an agent. <laughs> and we'd be like, we'd try so hard to steer them away and say, look, when somebody really wants to talk to a person, they want to talk to a person. Please don't, you know, put all these barriers in their way. Um, because there are some things people are very happy to do. And I'm like, check my balance. I don't need to talk to somebody. But if I have a problem, you know, I probably really want to talk to a human. Yeah. So it seems like it's going to be that balance, right? Of, uh, of knowing like when, when to meet people with bots, when to meet them with humans. Right. And that it's going to be hopefully like a well calibrated stew of that. Right. So it's like yeah. we're, we are, bots are tending to our needs sometimes that humans aren't so good at tending to, but they're also leaving us more time to create art, right. create art like this, I guess. And I've seen work, like again, in the healthcare space where they're like, oh, we could replace the intake process where, you know, the nurse comes and takes your blood pressure and asks you some questions. They don't need it. But you forget, what is the nurse doing? The nurse is also often setting you at ease before you see the doctor, yeah, yeah, before yeah. your procedure. They're not just asking you rapid fire 10 questions. They're saying, how are you doing? Oh, and they're noticing things if you answer the question in a particular way. Oh, they seem nervous. It's not just what are the answers to these 10 questions. There's a whole other thing going on there with that human interaction. That yes. I think sometimes people are like, we can automate that when it's like, well, what are you going to lose if you automate, it, automate yeah. that human interaction? Yeah. And what is she doing? Like now picking up the phone and answering, you know, simple questions instead of the intake, you know, that's crazy. Have something else answer the simple questions so she can. Yeah. So the nurse can the, actually do yeah. the, the caretaking and be like <laughs> yeah. the interaction and the, you know, yeah. helping the person. Yeah, so I, I guess I guess the the way to navigate this is just for all of us to understand ourselves better, what we want. You know, I think this misunderstanding that we want productivity, um, and that we measure ourselves on productivity and that's what makes us happy is being productive. Um right. is just so false. Yeah. Well, this has been a great sorry, Josh, did you wanna I was just Let's oh go. no! I I was going to say uh, uh, thank you for making art with us today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This, yes. has, cool. this yeah. has been a lot of fun. This I was. really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, having me on and working working around my all my schedule and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Yeah, oh, not a problem. This is great. Thanks, Kathy. Glad we finally did it. Yeah.
Hey, thanks again for tuning in to Invisible Machines. Don't forget to follow Invisible Machines wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they drop. You can also watch this podcast on the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. Thank you so much to everyone who listens to this podcast and especially to those of you who leave comments because we've received a lot of really useful commentary that has helped us shape this podcast as we move forward with it. Thank you as always to our producers, Elias Parker, Kate Timchenko, and our video editor, Michael Litvinov for making this podcast look and sound wonderful. We look forward to catching up with you again next week, right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.